Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today is the 6th of July and I'm joined by the recently retired IDF Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus. For background, Jonathan served in the IDF for 24 years in a variety of roles, including as an infantry commander, as a liaison to the UN, and his final post as the IDF's international spokesperson. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Shalom, Richard, and thank you very much for having me. So perhaps we should start with kind of the, the obvious issues this week and the, the operation in Janine that saw the largest IDF incursion into the West Bank for around 20 years. What was your overall assessment of the operation? The, I think that the overall aims of the, the military, tactical and operational aims of the operation were achieved. And I think they were achieved at a minimal cost Sadly, an Israeli soldier was killed in the last stage of uh, of the operation. But other than that, relatively low cost, and I think phenomenal, uh, very limited uh, effect on Palestinian civilians, which I think is something that's worthy of uh, really of praise. The level of attention that the IDF. Uh, focused on minimizing uh, any Palestinian casualties. I think that's phenomenal. Um, but overall, you know, I- infrastructure, operatives, uh, explosives, weapons, etc. These were the stated goals. And I think that uh, overall, the IDF were able to uh, obtain them. Uh, so from a tactical perspective, Israeli troops on the ground, they, uh, you know, encountered quite limited resistance. I, I, I think that most of the militants in the area were kind of uh, caught a bit by surprise by the first, by how the IDF launched the operation, started from the air and then the ground incursion. And probably they weren't really expecting the aerial assault on their joint operation room. And, and that's, a, that's a good achievement. Uh, but the, really the questions today are, okay, so what's next? When is the next operation going to be? And uh, where does this leave uh, Israel? Where does it leave the Palestinian Authority? And what will, will, will the next few weeks and months look like in uh, northern Samaria, which uh, has been an area over the last year and a half uh, in greater to a greater extent, really a lawless area. The Palestinian Authority has evacuated most of it, of its responsibility not control the area and the question really i think the most important question will be okay will will they return if if they return in what capacity what will israel do in order to mitigate the what appears to be almost unlimited flow of weapons into northern samaria most of it according to the information that i have coming in through jordan um smuggled across the Jordanian border and perhaps some of it also via the uh, legal crossings. Uh, So that will be a strategic issue that needs to be addressed, I think. Thank you. And you've you've raised uh, two or three points that that I would like to follow up on. Perhaps one of the, uh, to start with the the tactical aspect that you mentioned, that the operation began with, uh, with with the use of uh, of drones, um, which traditionally the IDF has been reluctant to deploy in the West Bank, um, perhaps you could explain that traditional reluctance and why, and and, and explain the the reversal of why that was now seen as as necessary. 
in my mind, the IDF understands. Of, of course, let's let's keep in in uh, context here that the IDF is uh, overwhelmingly much more powerful, militarily speaking, than any of its uh, enemies, whether it is Hamas in or Islamic Jihad in Gaza or any of the Palestinian terror organizations in uh, Judea and Samaria. And the IDF, of course, understands that uh, when it uses new and more powerful measures in order to uh, combat uh, terror organizations, that is also an escalatory measure. Uh, air assets, whether it's uh, fixed wing or rotary wing, or if it's uh, drones, are, I think, perceived as an escalatory matter, uh, an escalation of, uh, of uh, the deployment of force, and as such, have not been used by, uh, by the IDF. I think it's important to mentioned that the strike in which three Palestinian terrorists were killed uh, about a few weeks ago, uh, close to Jenin, uh, was uh, much more in the, uh, along the lines of preventing an imminent attack. Uh, and that's an important distinction to, uh, to make, because I've heard commentators say that, oh no, Israel is going to start doing Gaza-style or Lebanon-style or Syria-style targeted killings or assassinations in uh, Judea and Samaria, that wasn't exactly what that uh, operation was. It was more taking out three uh, terrorists that were on their way to conducting a drive-by shooting attack. Mm. Uh, so I think that the IDF is careful not to introduce you know, uh, too much uh, firepower into the battlefield. But uh, on the other hand, when we see the escalation in terms of weapons that the different organizations are using against Israel, uh, the scope of their employment, the caliber, the size, and the amount, and I'm speaking mostly about uh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices or roadside bombs, uh, which are now very uh, prolific in, uh, or have been in prolific use in, uh, in Jenin and uh, probably will be in Nablus as well. And uh, we're, we're we're seeing uh, the use of that extensive use of uh, monitoring equipment. And I don't think that we are far from the day when we will see the introduction of anti-tank rockets, not necessarily missiles, that are, who are, they are more complex and expensive, but uh, RPG style, uh, that I think will be a game changer. Uh, I hope it won't happen, but I think that if I were a, a militant or a terrorist, that would be my number one uh, aspiration to really change the rules of engagement in Judea and Samaria because it would really make it difficult for the IDF to operate because everything is based on wheeled uh, uh, mounted uh, operations, basically jeeps and armored uh, armored trucks, uh, which are excellent targets against uh, anti-tank routes. So that would make really an escalation. Uh, but then Israel would have to uh, take uh, other countermeasures and uh, move in heavy. And that's definitely something that uh, would be would come at a heavy price uh, from a civilian point of view and also an IDF point of view. No doubt. Um, another aspect, just to, to follow up on, you mentioned kind of the um, the incredible proliferation of weapons and the smuggling of uh, of, of uh, semi-automatic, sophisticated weapons from Jordan. Uh, Bicom wrote about that in a paper earlier this year when we were concerned about the rise of one. Of violence around uh, around Ramadan and the statistics yeah. that we cited said you know that uh, I think in 2022 there were more arms smuggled in than the two years previously combined that and coupled with the fact as you mentioned earlier that the a lot of the the armed men 
when the IDF began the operation, basically fled and, and kept their, excuse the euphemism, kept their powder dry to fight another day. We're perhaps likely to see repeated incursions again into Jenin, um, if not weeks and months. I mean, I mean is, that, is that the realistic scenario that we're looking at? I, I think very much so. Uh, I think that uh, when we look at, you know, how the militants responded, um, initial surprise and then just kind of a shock and then dis disengage and uh, hide uh, using, by the way, uh, ambulances and uh, conceding themselves or hiding as civilians and using the evacuating civilians from the refugee camp uh, as um, kind of a... Uh, uh, something uh, as, as as a defense or not necessarily human shield, but really hiding uh, among them. Um, and, and part of what the IDF wanted to establish was that freedom of movement, freedom of ability to mm -hmm. operate again whenever necessary. And I think that was uh, achieved and achieved very well uh, to the extent that if tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, the IDF needs to go in with a company-sized unit uh, and to apprehend uh, a militant, whereas before the operation, that was questionable and would probably have entailed quite a lot of casualties. Uh, and the, uh, the, the militants, I think they made the uh, uh, pretty, from their perspective, a wise decision not to fight because they were uh, outgunned, outmaneuvered um, and uh, outpowered. Uh, and they do what usually terrorists and militants do whenever uh, they are faced with such a situation. They run and hide amongst the civilians and have uh, others uh, face the consequences of their actions instead. Uh, but I think we're looking at something that will repeat itself. Maybe not a you know brigade plus size operation in the imminent future, but maybe we'll see battalions, battalion combat teams moving in uh, executing missions over a day or two, and then uh, retreating back into Israel. One of the other interesting features that your successors in the IDF spokesperson's office emphasized at the beginning of the operation, that this operation was not against the, the Palestinian Authority. Um, do you think there's any prospect of the Palestinian Authority security forces filling that vacuum and returning to the security cooperation, and perhaps not necessarily in Jenin, but in quieter areas of the West Bank. Is that realistic? Well, the Israeli defense establishment appears very much connected to and, um, and uh, caring of the Palestinian Authority in the sense that uh, it seems as if, as if official Israel uh, needs the Palestinian Authority and doesn't want it to collapse, and but then doesn't really have a way of making the Palestinian Authority really execute its responsibilities under the Oslo Accords. And as I alluded to before, uh, the reason that uh, both Janine and Nablus are in such a horrible state and they are so, so uh, full of militant organizations and um, really a hotbed of, of, of terrorist activity um, is because the Palestinian Authority uh, has vacated and, and left it uh, open. Um, mm. I'm, I'm hearing more and more voices really uh, questioning 
the viability uh, of the Palestinian Authority as a partner in the Oslo Accords, as someone who is supposed to govern and bring about uh, Palestinian independence and statehood, um, as an organization that could be or should be considered as a moderate and an organization that is essentially positive in outlook. I'm hearing more and more question marks about that. And, you know, when you look at it, I can understand that defense establishment who look at it from a, you know, a peace and quiet perspective, whereas where there is security coordination, that is good for Israeli security needs. But on the strategic level, when I look at the Palestinian Authority, it seems as if that authority has made a strategic decision under Mahmoud Abbas uh, to fight Israel uh, by any means except for intifada and armed struggle with uh, with their uh, defense uh, or with their armed forces. Uh, legal warfare, international uh, media warfare, condemnation and, and uh, supporting BDS and undermining the legitimacy of Israel. Um, rampant, uh, I mean, it, it's allegedly part of the education system, but we're, we're talking really about the incitement and about uh, a lot of anti-Semitism and uh, Israel hatred in their education system. Things that, you know, on the bigger picture aren't what you're looking for when, when, when you're thinking about a, a partner that is supposed to have an interest in maintaining stability. Um, so uh, what I think is that we're nearing the time when both the defense establishment and official Israel, let's say Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Prime Minister's office, will have to assess, is this really the Palestinian Authority? Is this really the, the, the best option of a partner that Israel can have in order to promote its own goals of uh, security, safety uh, for its civilians and sovereignty? Um, and uh, that's a question that I think, first and foremost, needs to be answered by the Palestinian Authority. And, uh, of course, there are many things happening. Uh, the, Mahmoud Abbas is, um, as he has been for quite a few years, uh, probably nearing or getting closer to the end of his term. Um, and, and, and then there will be interesting developments once, uh, once uh, he isn't at the helm. Uh, that may be the time to ask those questions and try to answer them from an Israeli perspective? Big, big questions that we'll, some of those we'll leave, we'll leave for another time. But just perhaps to reflect on one aspect, um, beyond the conflict in Janine, the rest of the West Bank stayed relatively quiet. Uh, how, do you, how would you explain that? Yes, that is, uh, I think, a terrible failure for Hamas. Uh, and the Islamic Jihad and the Iranians. Because, I mean, if we zoom out in terms of scope and also in terms of time what what i think happened after uh, the um, operation guardian of the walls in may 2021 uh, the idf dealt quite a heavy blow to hamas hamas sustained significant casualties uh, both in terms of personnel but more importantly in terms of their production capabilities their arsenal of uh, rockets and other weapons um, and at the end of it, they were kind of left with the understanding that, well, this was a, another round, more of the same, uh, which ended like the other ones did with a lot of damage in Gaza and Hamas having to answer questions by angry civilians in Gaza. Why did you bring upon 
why did you bring this destruction upon us in Gaza? Uh, and I think that since then, Hamas has shifted and they are investing really tremendous resources and efforts into incitement, mostly on social media, but also in mosques, uh, focusing on the population in Judea and Samaria and in Eastern Jerusalem, trying to generate the kind of sentiment and uh, uprising uh, in the streets. Um, Intifada would probably be what they were looking to achieve and for things to spiral out of control and out of hand. Uh, came closer to it in Ramadan, the last Ramadan and, and the one before, but this, this one, the last one was, uh, was quite tense for a few days. Uh, but during this round of fighting, uh, it failed uh, miserably. Yes, there was one terror attack in Israel where a, a Palestinian from Hebron uh, ran over uh, Israeli pedestrians and tried to stab them and wounded uh, eight and was sub sub subsequently killed. But at the end of the day, nothing in the mixed cities, nothing substantial in Judea and Samaria. And in my mind, my read of it is that the economic benefits of maintaining quiet uh, still outweigh Hamas's ability to incite and call for violence and ask people to really give up what they've worked, people as in Palestinians, to give up what they've worked so hard for to achieve. Um, their economic comfort and and that they've elevated their quality of life and so far people are uh, answering voting with their feet and saying that no that that we, we we don't believe in the propaganda and we don't believe in what you're offering us and probably we don't believe that what you're offering is really good for my future mm. Very interesting thank you um can I turn our attention now to the north and a sector that I know you know well um for full disclosure yep. for our audience, I know that we we first met when you were serving as an officer uh, as a liaison to the UN in the in, in the northern borders. Indeed, um, one of the briefings that uh, where Bicom brought uh, another high quality delegation of journalists to Israel. That's 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 right, and uh, yeah. we still can we still continue to do that when we when we can. Um, Very good. So to ask to ask about kind of this aspect of kind of military diplomacy. Um, in the last two weeks, we've seen a situation where Hezbollah have set up a couple of tents. Um, and to, to, to explain this to our audience, this is south of the blue line, the, the, the UN recognized international border between Israel and Lebanon. But so it's inside Israeli territory, but it's still north due to topography and other considerations of the Israeli security fence in the area that they patrol. We saw just a few days ago, uh, one of the tents has now been dismantled, while the other one remains. Just, I would say, a couple of questions of this, but to start with, just drawing on your experience as a liaison to the UN, I wonder if you could share some of the insider's perspective of what the process of security diplomacy looks like between the IDF and the other organizations there with interest yeah. in Lebanon. Sure. Uh, first, though, I'd uh, emphasize that my experience with, with Lebanon uh, was first and foremost, you know, uh, boots on the ground as a combat soldier in Givati, uh, the days before Israel, uh, when Israel was still in the security buffer zone and uh, fighting Hezbollah on the ground before 2000. So that's my first perspective. The mm. second perspective is the one of uh, words and letters and uh, and statements, uh, the diplomatic one. And uh, for the time being, that, the latter, the diplomatic one, is what Israel is uh, trying to use uh, in order to uh, make Hezbollah dismantle 
this little provocation that they've uh, built uh, across the blue line. Just one slight correction. In the area where Hezbollah built this fence up on Mount Dov, uh, Mount Dov is what we call it, the Syrians call it Jabal Ghos, and uh, Hezbollah, the UN, and most of the world call it uh, the Shaba Farms. It's an issue of terminology, but it's uh, quite important, the name that you chose, that you choose for a, a different location. But uh, what Hezbollah did is that they built these fences in an area where there is no real uh, security fence and there's no real uh, markings on the ground where the blue line is. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because in my mind, I think that they are responding to actions that Israel is taking in fortifying Israeli positions and, and enhancing the defense along the blue line. In many parts of the blue line, from Roshanikra all the way up to Mount Dov, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way up to Mount Dov. The IDF is doing a lot of construction based on the understanding that Hezbollah has plans and is building the capabilities to cross from Lebanon into Israel above ground in order to, uh, uh, in order to attack. Um, and, and they're kind of responding to that, uh, uh, Hezbollah, and trying to create a provocation on the ground. Now, in terms of what Israel is, is uh, doing, uh, opting for uh, not using kinetics, not using force, obviously that could be done and it could be done uh, quite swiftly, uh, but there would be, a, of course, a response by Hezbollah and then Israel would have to respond. And I think uh, the assessment made in Israel was, let's try it the diplomatic way. Uh, but it's definitely been taking a lot of time. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's a good example showing how complex and how slow things move once they're in the diplomatic realm. Uh, it's granted, it's positive that nobody's getting shot or, 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 or killed or injured. Uh, that's definitely the best uh, uh, positive thing of it. But on the other hand, it is taking a lot of time to force Hezbollah to dismantle a little tent that they've built on the Israeli side of the blue line. Uh, in terms of the workings, UNIFIL, you know, it's a more than 10,000 uh, man and woman mission, uh, has an annual budget of, I think, around 500 million US dollars. And the best I think contribution that UNIFIL brings to stability in southern Lebanon and Israel is the ability to liaise between the sides and to carry messages and try to be a, a mitigating factor preventing um, misunderstandings, miscalculations and uh, escalation on, on, along the border. And, and that's, it, it appears as that is what they're doing now. I hope that could be done faster um, and I hope that UNIFIL reporting will really reflect reality on the ground, uh, stating clearly who is transgressing, uh, why they are transgressing, and uh, again, perhaps giving diplomatic points or credits to Israel for choosing the diplomatic route and not the kinetic one. Indeed. I mean, do you think, I mean, do they have enough influence and, uh, and from, again, from your experience serving in that, in that, in that role, um, or your current assessment as well of the, the role that the LAF, the Lebanese Armed Forces play? Are they, are, could they is they perceptively a, a reliable partner to be able to enforce uh, Lebanese sovereignty and push back Hezbollah at all? Or is that uh, wildly naive? Yeah, in short, no. Uh, in short, uh, I, I think not. Unfortunately, reality and numerous uh, 
case studies uh, along the years have uh, really given us ample input uh, to lay to rest any such naive uh, thoughts that uh, UNIF would actually implement uh, Resolution 1701, that uh, the area south of the Litani would be free of illegal weapons, i.e. Hezbollah mm. weapons, and that the Lebanese armed forces would be the only other armed entity other than UNIFIL carrying weapons. These three things that I mentioned are the core of the 1701 UN Security Council resolution. They are not implemented, uh, which is very unfortunate. It's, it's unfortunate because resolution 1701 and the beefed up UNIFIL that came into power after 2006 were really supposed to be a kind of an insurance uh, for the region. Uh, to prevent the third Lebanon war, uh, to prevent it by not allowing Hezbollah to control southern Lebanon and, and be present there. And unfortunately, far from it, uh, not only is Hezbollah uh, the dominant force in southern Lebanon, last two, three months, what we're seeing is that we have Hezbollah, the old and known uh, enemy of Israel. And in addition to that, Hamas has now become uh, an up-and-coming uh, force in southern Lebanon, capable of firing rockets, capable of uh, uh, challenging the IDF from uh, from the north, uh, and doing so under Iranian guidance and, of course, Hezbollah approval. Uh, so, if anything, I'd say that the situation has only deteriorated from a strategic point of view, and that neither UNIFIL nor the Lebanese armed forces are anywhere close to implementing Lebanese sovereignty or uh, enforcing Resolution 1701. And just another um, sector, another another theatre across the border into, into, into Syria. We saw another an, another rocket also fired earlier this week, this time anti-aircraft fire, um, which appeared to have a massive range travelling over half the, the length of the country before yes. um, being taken out over Israeli skies. With, I mean, we saw the footage of huge pieces of, of rockets landing in the, in, in, in the Negev. Yep. Um, I mean, to get your assessment on that, but also in a in a wide in a in a wider sense of that uh, that correlation of relationships between Hezbollah, the Iranian proxies, and the Iranian efforts to continue smuggling and uh, and entrench their uh, their 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 uh, their, their milit militias there on the border. What's, yeah. uh, what update can you give us? Yeah, the uh, the remains of the uh, Syrian SA five are indeed. Uh, Quite uh, very large, and uh, and and it's tempting to speak about the the missile. Uh, what I would, uh, as as you are leading, uh, I think I'd focus on is okay. What's the big picture with regards mm. to Syria and uh, and Hezbollah? Uh, in Syria, Iran is uh, very committed, continues to be very committed to uh, implementing its strategy of long-term change, as in um, uh, population, influencing the population balance in Syria, uh, importing Shiites into uh, strategic areas in order to have uh, ground bases and, uh, and, and um, Iranian control in, in certain areas. We see neighborhoods in Damascus, we see villages on the Golan, all of a sudden with Shiite uh, symbols and with uh, Shiite-style prayers and with uh, uh, Shiite insignia uh, that are totally foreign to Sunni-dominated Syria, but are part of the Iranian program of, of having this 
proxy in uh, in Syria. So on the demographic level, they're active. On the economic level, they are very active uh, in Syria, um, including with the drug trafficking uh, that was just uh, recently. Uh, I saw a very interesting uh, story on it on uh, on BBC about the Captagon, which is of course not new, but really uh, uh, cl closely connected to all of it. And uh, in terms of uh, weapons, uh, the convoys, they continue to uh, run uh, from east to west, from uh, Iran through Iraq and then Syria, uh, aiming for, for Lebanon. Some of them make it across, some of them don't, uh, as a result of Israeli interdiction. Uh, the most important ones, I'd like to believe, don't make it across, but unfortunately, uh, some of the important ones also make it across to Lebanon, uh, to the hands of Hezbollah. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why Hezbollah today has precision-guided missiles, uh, how they've been able to establish a, a, an infrastructure in Lebanon to build and manufacture by themselves precision-guided missiles uh, with Iranian uh, components and Iranian help. Um, and what uh, I, I think we're going to continue to see is uh, continued Israeli efforts against Iranian uh, strategy in uh, Syria, a continued efforts by Hezbollah to establish itself uh, on, uh, on the Syrian Golan Heights, mostly in the north, uh, and additional attempts by Iran to uh, use Syria as a uh, launch pad towards Israel. Um, I don't think that they are going to uh, stop their efforts. I think that they are very committed, and I think Syria is far too important and that they've already invested so much time, resources, and money, uh, and, and blood, including Iranian blood, in order for them just to, uh, to, to stop investing in it. Uh, so the situation in the north, I mean, it's different than in Judea and Samaria, but it is uh, definitely very potent and there are many very powerful players at Israel's doorstep uh, vying for position. Uh, and if anything, perhaps to, to, to summarize in terms of the developments in the North, I am concerned by the fact that you know, over many years, Hezbollah has been able to accumulate such a massive arsenal of rockets, uh, short, medium, and long-range rockets in Lebanon, 130,000 of them aimed at Israel, and now with these advanced precision-guided missile capabilities. In addition, Hamas has become a, has its proxy organizations in Lebanon. And all in all, with Iranian presence in Syria, uh, Hezbollah and Hamas in Lebanon, uh, and, the, uh, and Hamas and the Islamic Jihad in Gaza, uh, we're looking at a picture which, you know, there's really a convergence and quite a lot of threats that are inching closer um, to our borders and have larger and more potent capabilities, military capabilities, to leverage against Israel. Gosh, there's nothing. Uh, no, I wish there was a more positive way to uh, to end it. But thank you for your <laughs> thank you for your for your realistic picture. And sadly, we'll be returning to these themes, I imagine, in the uh, in the weeks ahead. But for today, uh, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me, Richard. And uh, as always, a pleasure. Thank you.